Okay, now we're officially on. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, last week, Desmond, who's co-teaching the class with me, uh, began looking at the witness of the Old and New Testaments to Christ. Uh, specifically, he looked at Christ in four ways, as the agent of creation, as the last of the two Adams, as the one who exercises full redemptive dominion, and as the true and perfect image of God. And it's interesting as we consider Christ in relation to these things, that He is the one who created all things, who created the first Adam, and He created him in His image, and He gave him dominion. But the first Adam fell through sin, and as a result corrupted and marred the image of God in himself. He lost that dominion that he had been given, and the entire good creation was cursed and made subject to decay. So Christ comes then as one who is the true and perfect and incorruptible image of God, and he becomes a man and stands then as the second Adam, and as the second Adam, he defeats the enemy and is given all authority in heaven on, and on earth and is now extending that universal dominion until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And in exercising that dominion, he is restoring the corrupted image of man through his redemptive work and will, will consummate that redemptive work in a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. <clears throat> now today, we're going to continue to look at the witness of the Old and New Testament to Christ, and we will do so <clears throat> not so much as he is seen in relation to creation and to Adam, but we will see Christ in relation to the history of Israel. <clears throat> so how are we to understand the history of Israel? It, it takes up the vast portion of our Bible. Um, but what does the history of Israel really mean for the world? <clears throat> we think about the <clears throat> calling and the covenant with Abraham regarding his seed. Think about the calling of Moses and the covenant with Israel at Sinai. We think about the calling of David and the promise to establish his dynastic throne forever, and the failure of Israel and their exile in Babylon, and then also their return with the hope of the promised restoration. And looking at these things and understanding their meaning will give us understanding and insight into who Christ is and what he is doing in the world. But to understand the meaning of Israel's history, we have to consider the context out of which it arises. <clears throat> From Genesis 3 on, we see the universal effects of sin, specifically at, as it has its primary effect on man and his alienation from his creator. Now we know that man is created a social being, that he was made to live in communion with others, first and foremost, with God, who made him in his image, and that he could have a relationship with him, 
and that he could be like him, that he could reflect his character as he fulfilled his mandate to exercise dominion over creation. And being a social creature, therefore, is part of being made in the image of God, who himself lives in perfect unity and communion in the relations of the Trinity. And so when God made man, you remember, he said that it was not good for him to be alone. So he made Eve to be with him, to help him, to complete him. And so it says he made man in his image, male and female. And he told them to be fruitful and to multiply, to create families and clans and tribes and nations and to exercise dominion. So God made us to have communion with himself and with others in a social context, promoting the good and glorifying God. But we also know that sin entered the picture <clears throat> and broke that bond of communion between man and God, corrupting and distorting man's own nature and thus damaging his relationship with others. All of man's relations were damaged, including the physical world itself. And we see this in the early chapters of Genesis from Jealousy and murder to polygamy and pride, sin and death reigned. Before the flood, we see mankind united together in a common interest, the perpetual pursuit of wickedness and sin. At the Tower of Babel, mankind is organized together and motivated and determined to accomplish their massive corporate goal to make a name for themselves. Left to himself, man's pursuits always lead to further expressions of his sin and corruption and lead to deeper and more destructive problems. The only answer to man's problem is to recreate, to reestablish the bond between God and man. And this is what was promised in Genesis 3.15. <clears throat> that the seed of the woman would come and destroy the devil and restore what was lost through sin and rebellion. It says there, I will put enmity, God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Of course, this is referring to Christ's defeat of Satan um, in his own death. <clears throat> the freeing of man from bondage to Satan would be part of bringing him back into fellowship with God. The work of recreating the bond between God and man and man and man can only be accomplished by God himself. It would require him to provide the seed who would conquer and this seed spoken of in Genesis 3 is the same seed later promised to Abraham, the one who would bring blessings to all the nations. And he's identified in Galatians 3:16 and 18 and 4 chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 as Jesus Christ. In fact, if you'll uh, turn with me to Galatians 3, we'll take a look at that text. 
<clears throat> Galatians 3, verse 16, <clears throat> says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, or his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. <clears throat> and then if you'll look at Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. And there Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. <clears throat> so this is a work of redemption that God Himself would undertake in the person of Jesus Christ the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham. In the context of mankind's sin and inability, only God can provide the redemptive remedy. Salvation can be accomplished by nothing short of God Himself stooping down to our level to remove the alienation on both sides and to restore humanities to God's favor and to communion with Himself and with one another. And this is what we see happening throughout Israel's history and what makes Israel's history so significant. <clears throat> Excuse me. Douglas Kelly describes the history of Israel as the story of God coming down to lift man up. And more specifically, he says, the story of Israel is the prehistory of the incarnate word of Christ of God in Christ. Luther referred to Israel as forming a womb for the birth of Christ. So Israel provides a matrix, if you will, for the work of salvation. As we look at Israel's history, we see the patterns, the paradigms, and the purposes of God in salvation being established and being developed for the instruction, not just of Israel, but for all people. <clears throat> so how is the formation of this matrix worked out in Israel's history leading up to the full revelation in Christ? One way we could approach this would be to ask another question. How can the finite mind ever grasp the infinite God? The difficulty presented in this simple question can be seen in the works of philosophers and teachings of religions throughout the ages. From Plato to Immanuel Kant to the existentialists, accessibility to true knowledge of God, to the mind of God, has remained a perennial problem. And the religions of the world offer no viable solution. Man in himself cannot reach God. But God refused to allow our limitations and weaknesses to inhibit his purpose 
of love and redemption. He has determined to overcome our limitations even by condescending to work through those limitations. Doug Kelly explains, in this wonderful condescension to our finitude, the Lord provided in the order of creation creational analogies and categories for us, such as father, son, shepherd, sacrifice, etc. And he points out that this analogous revelation is reflected also in human language as well and supremely in the self-revelatory word. <clears throat> and God's condescension is seen also as Calvin said, is seen in this also, as Calvin said, God lisps or he speaks baby language, baby talk, so that we can understand him. And ultimately in the person of Jesus, he becomes one of us and lives among us as a man with all of its humbling experiences. As, the, as this is true, Kelly states, one of the chief tools of apprehension of God by humanity was his choosing of the race of Israel in whose life and history he shows his grace. So man <clears throat> in his finiteness and fallenness has no hope of finding God but in the life and history of Israel and in the inspired interpretation of that history, God has given us a deep and rich revelation of himself and of his purposes. God is not limited by our weaknesses, finitude, and ignorance, but designs a means of making himself and his purposes known in and through the history of a particular people. Through Israel and through his instructions and interactions with Israel, God provides tools of apprehension so that we can know him. These conceptual tools are intellectual analogies or categories to shape the apprehending of the knowledge of God in the human mind. So God chooses Israel, a small and insignificant people whom God himself calls the least and a stubborn and stiff-necked people and determines to make them an instrument of his redemptive purpose to reveal himself to every people and to provide salvation for men and women from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. When we come to the early pages of the New Testament, we're faced with repeated scenes where godly, devout Believers come to understand that God is fulfilling in their day what He had promised long before and what all the Old Testament saints were longing for in providing the Messiah. Specifically, we see it in Luke chapters 1 and 2 where we see Elizabeth and then Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna as they come to understand what God is doing in their day, 
And as they respond to that, we see them praising God for His goodness and grace and rehearsing in song, some of them, the meaning of Israel's history. They're saying the Old Testament story was the preparation for this child who had now come. <clears throat> they reference scripture after scripture. Uh, and as T.S. Torrance points out, the Son of God comes in the flesh, the Redeemer of Israel. All of these references to the Old Testament scriptures. To the, the light of the Gentiles. Zechariah, Anna, Simeon, and John the Baptist. And who more than the Blessed Virgin Mary, and then one after another, the twelve disciples and many others who acknowledge that this was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. So without the history of Israel, we would not even begin to understand the bewildering miracle of Jesus, God in the flesh. How could we understand the cross, without the Levitical system, without the morning and evening sacrifices, without the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> Again, uh, Douglas Kelly drives this point home, saying, as the accounts of Christ's passion in all four of the Gospels show, we need the deliverance out of Egypt and the Passover of the Exodus. We need Isaiah 52 and 53, Psalm 22 and 69, and Zechariah 9, to get a handle on what is happening to the Redeemer in our place. We need the prophets. We need King David and the others. We need the high priest to grasp what the incarnate Son of God is doing for us as our true prophet, priest, and king. <clears throat> now to illustrate this, the necessity of this Old Testament background to understand Christ's work, Kelly tells a story <clears throat> of a missionary in the China Inland Mission in the early 20th century. <clears throat> and this particular missionary was based in the Sichuan province and he would travel up to Tibet in the spring when the snows had receded and he would work there year after year translating the scriptures into their language and establishing churches there. <clears throat> now he first began translating the New Testament with the help of the people and translated much of the New Testament and so he would go back and forth between Sichuan province and Tibet and he found that when he would come back, they had been reading what he had translated, but they had many questions about it. The missionary would explain in response to their questions that the things they were asking about were found in the Old Testament, <clears throat> in Genesis and in the Psalms and in the Prophets. And then <clears throat> he began the work of translating the Old Testament and when he had done that work, and then when they had read that and understood what had been translated there from the Old Testament, they said, oh, now we understand 
Um, and now you have to go back and retranslate the New Testament because when we were helping you initially, we didn't, we didn't understand the background and, and we didn't give a proper meaning to what was, what was going on. In other words, without their understanding of the Old Testament, their translation of the New Testament was, was very flawed because they, they didn't have the conceptual background to work it. So that's how necessary this conceptual world of the Old Testament is for a proper understanding of the person and work of Christ. Without Israel, we don't have the conceptual tools, the analogies to get who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing. <clears throat> now, another uh, line of thought and understanding how Israel's history forms the matrix for understanding Christ is seeing that in Israel, God established what T.F. Torrance called a community of reciprocity, a community of reciprocity, or a reciprocal sharing of life together, a give and take relationship, a mutual agreement binding two parties together. God was working in Israel to create this community of reciprocity in which his word to them would evoke a response back to God. This is the basis of how we learn both to hear God speaking to us and to speak back to God. <clears throat> a marriage is a relationship of reciprocity, as is the larger family. And Israel is both seen as God's child uh, in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, and as God's covenanted wife, as we see in the book of Hosea and other places. <clears throat> so this is uh, typical of the loving, giving, and receiving within the ontological trinity itself. So that inter-Trinitarian communion is reflected um, in this community of reciprocity. Though all, through all of Israel's history, God was preparing a people who would hear his word and respond rightly as a true child. God's word spoken to his people was to create an appropriate response. God used both the good and the bad responses of Israel to further communicate his word and his purpose and his own character. Think of the prophetic books, which are full of correction and judgment, and also of promise of return and restoration. And God <clears throat> did this so that the revelation of God would come to mankind in a humanly understandable form. In his mighty providence, he used even the bad responses of Israel to penetrate their life more deeply so that the word would come more fully to them and then through them would come fully to all nations. In due seasons, all the families of the earth would come to be blessed in Abraham, according to Genesis 12.3. This people were to be a light to the Gentiles, as Isaiah 49, verse 6 declares. But 
even as this special relationship put them in a privileged position, their own weakness put them in a difficult place. The election of Israel as God's chosen people carried not only the tremendous blessing of having God in their midst, instructing them and leading them, but it also carried the great responsibility of being that people through whom God would also make known His righteousness and holiness through judgment. So yes, there was much blessing that came to Israel as God's chosen people, but because they could not fulfill the law, and because God's aim was to show the fullness of His character, the Israelites would of necessity also suffer much as God's chosen people. And this was both for their own chastening and holiness, and also that the rest of the world could see and know the character of Yahweh. Israel was to be a light to the nations, but where they failed, God would still bring the light of revelation of his holy character in both judgment and in grace. <clears throat> this reality of the chosen of God being the recipients of both blessing and suffering was true not only of the nation of Israel, but also was true for Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill Israel's calling, and it's taught in many places in both the Old and New Testament that Christ would first have to suffer and then enter His glory. And this is true also of His chosen people in the New Covenant Church. We are told that as children of God and as heirs, we must suffer with Him that we may also be glorified with Him. And that's Romans 8:17. <clears throat> so in addition to um, providing uh, these conceptual tools for understanding and this reciprocal relationship, <clears throat> another line of thought, understanding how Israel's history forms this matrix for understanding Christ is that this relationship is not merely a conceptual and intellectual one, but it would be an organic relationship, binding Israel into an intimate relation with God's being. So this is an organic binding which ties Israel into sharing in a mode appropriate for humans, sharing in the very life of God. This organic bonding was a covenanted relationship, profoundly different than that of the other nations, so that Israel was God's own people, a peculiar people, set apart from the other Adamic tribes of the earth. Through God's word, with its law and promises progressively revealed, and also through the prescribed, regular, ongoing observance of the temple rituals, the cleansings, the daily sacrifices and offerings, <clears throat> and through the special days, the Day of Atonement and the appointed feasts, God was ingraining in them personally and in the fabric of their corporate life the knowledge of the appropriate way of response which ultimately he himself would finally provide 
in Jesus Christ, the one whom he elected to fulfill that covenant in a way that Israel on its own could never fulfill. So this organic relationship between God and his people is often presented in Scripture in terms of a grapevine. Um, One place we see that is in Isaiah 5, 7. And uh, I want to look at that for a moment. Isaiah 5, verse 7. In fact, I'll begin at uh, verse 1. Let me... Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, outcry. So we see here that Israel being God's vineyard failed to produce the good fruit despite God's care and cultivation and protection. And for their failure, they reaped the destruction of exile. And by contrast, in John 15, Jesus takes up this image and shows himself to be the true vine cultivated by the Father. And not only is he a fruit-bearing vine, but all who abide in him are branches of that vine that bear fruit, even much fruit, because of their organic connection to him and his life-giving nourishment. Let's take a look at John 15. Verse 
And if I can have somebody read uh, verses 1 through 5. Anybody? I'll read it. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, so again, we see Christ here as the true vine, fulfilling what Israel failed to fulfill. Um, he produces the fruit that, that God requires, and it is only in our organic connection to him that we have any hope of bearing spiritual fruit, godly fruit that pleases the Lord. Um, and all who are in this organic connection are guaranteed to be a fruitful people for God's glory. <clears throat> now, in the remainder of our time, I want to move from this image of the vine, this metaphor of this organic relationship between Christ and his people, to a brief discussion of typology and allegory, which is very important in, in understanding the Old Testament, particularly as it relates to the person and work of Christ <clears throat> as we find it there. <clears throat> Can anybody give a basic definition of typology or of allegory? Nope, okay. Des, go ahead. Try. Um, I think uh, typology is um, something God establishes in uh, the Old Covenant supposed to be a pointer or um, a sign or symbol for something. So, I think so. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. Um, and yeah, and there are a few different <clears throat> elements that, that uh, are part of, of typology. Um, but yeah, typology refers to a correspondence of Old Testament persons or things or events. Um, and then New Testament truth. So there's, there's a corresponding relationship there. These Old Testament figures are actual historical realities which are designed by God to prefigure a, a corresponding but greater reality in the New Testament and in, in fulfillment. So the initial figure in such a relationship is called the type, and the later fulfillment is called the anti-type. George? An example of the, the big fish that swallowed Noah, and uh, he was in the belly of the fish, and Christ was in, in the grave, in his grave in the days. Right, okay, so, and Christ himself points out that, that connection. Very good. But it was Jonah. Jonah. No, it was, no, Noah was in the, the belly of a big boat. I, was, I, was, I, was, I want to make sure you were awake. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, yes. That was his brother. Indeed, indeed. <clears throat> okay, um, very good. And perhaps the uh, most easily identifiable biblical type is found in Romans 5.14. Um, and there Paul writes, 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So we see this typological relationship between Adam and Christ, the first Adam and the second Adam. And we won't go into all of the elements that, that fill out that type, but um, just, just to point out its reality. So a type in a type, there's <clears throat> an analogous relationship between two separate historical realities. The one intended by God to point to and to explain the other, which in turn heightens and fulfills the former. An allegory, on the other hand, speaks of one thing in terms of its meaning something else, with sometimes very little control over the derivation of that meaning, and at times very little concern for the reality or the historicity of that which is allegorized. An allegory might be described as an extended metaphor where all or most of the elements signify something else. Um, There are legitimate allegories in the Bible. For example, in Galatians 4.24, Paul speaks of Sarah and Hagar as mothers of the free children and of slave children, respectively. And And he says there that this can be interpreted allegorically as two covenants one of law and slavery, and one of freedom in Christ. Now another place where many see allegory is in John 10, where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And in that portion of scripture, many of the elements of the story refer to other things. Um, Sheep, another flock, hired hands, Thieves, sheepfold, hearing the shepherd's voice, uh, following him, etc. So he's using the image of a shepherd and sheep and all of the connected ideas, but he's not talking about shepherds and sheep in in the uh, natural sense. So while the Bible does contain some allegory, we must be careful, though, not to allegorize what is not allegory and read meaning into uh, the text that is not there or not intended to be there. It has to be defined and controlled by the text itself. But with regard to typology, the key point of typology is based on the historical revelational analogy between what God was already doing in Israel and what he would do in Christ. That is to say, God did things in Israel that were analogous to what he would do in Christ. Exodus and Passover, for for instance, were setting forth a pattern in Israel's history in analogy to what would be accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ. This was not allegory, Uh, not a fictitious story invented to convey some kind of spiritual truth, but this was historical truth that prefigured that prefigured in a literal sense what would literally be accomplished 
in the incarnate Christ through his cross and empty tomb. So these types were not accidental, but rather they were anchored in the long-term providence of God to accomplish redemption for his people. <clears throat> the New Testament itself uses typology to show how Christ was foreshadowed in the Old and fleshed out in the New Testament. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 which says quote, out of Egypt I have called my son is taken by Matthew to refer to the bringing of the Christ child by Joseph and Mary out of Egypt and back to Nazareth in Matthew 2 verse 15. So there's a typological relationship there. The underlying point here is that Israel, who came out of Egypt under Moses, proved to be a false son, whereas the incarnate Son of God would be the obedient Son that the Father always wanted, and He would do this on behalf of Israel and the church. Likewise, the brass serpent in Numbers 21 verse 9, that Moses was instructed to fashion then put on a pole so that the snake-bitten sinners who looked to it could be healed, that serpent prefigured Christ. Jesus told Nicodemus that those who looked to the one who would be lifted up would receive eternal life. And we see that in John 3, 14 and 15. This is uh, true typology, anchored in the analogies placed by God in the history of redemption, pointing beyond themselves to something infinitely greater, and yet still historically and literally true. Cyril of Alexandria said that in his person, Christ transformed types into truth. Um, and we might say that uh, he took those types and elevated them um, to a greater truth. Um, so these are just a few of the many types of Christ that we find in the scriptures. And there are many. And I wonder if some of you could maybe think of a few or name a couple. I'm sorry? Okay, the temple, the tabernacle, right. Exactly. Yeah, the, the temple was, yeah, the place where <clears throat> God met with his people, where he provided atonement, um, and ultimately that's fulfilled in Christ, who referred to his own, his own self as as the temple. Um, and we see New Testament scriptures uh, referencing that, and even the church as the temple because of our organic union with Christ. So that doesn't, the organic part doesn't work so much with the temple, but because of our connection to, to Christ. Yes? It's kind of maybe like a, a chance to conclude, but also ask the question at the same time. I always wondered about marriage being a typology. Because um, you know uh, Ephesians five yeah. uh, refers to the relationship with the church uh, and Christ, 
like the marriage relationship with the husband and the wife, would that be considered typology? That's yeah, I think so. I think that relationship holds, yeah, typological significance. Um, marriage was designed ultimately to, to reflect that reality, which will ultimately be fulfilled um, in Christ in the church. Say it again. Okay, so, so Isaac being a, a type of Christ, the one who was to be offered as a sacrifice um, by the Father. Um, but, um, <clears throat> right, and we see in that situation where there was a prophetic um, <clears throat> idea that, you know, where Abraham says the Lord God himself will provide the lamb, um, and ultimately that's referencing Christ. He, he provided the ram in the thicket at the time, but ultimately, he provided the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Good. The ark is not the type of Jesus being salvation. Yeah, very good. The, the ark. Um, <clears throat> in it, a few were saved, and judgment and condemnation came to the rest. And we know that Christ is, is the only refuge and safety um, where we can be... Um, spared the judgment to come and that in him we have salvation and we're, we're safe and protected by, by, by him. Correct. Yeah, Dan. Very good. Yeah, um, <clears throat> at, at, certainly, certainly the Passover um, and was, was clearly typological. Um, in regard to Christ's baptism, I really understand um, somewhat what, what you're saying there. And I'm, but um, I understand the baptism of Christ to be his initiation into his messianic office, which which um, includes his work as prophet, priest, and king, um, all, all of whom in the Old Testament were anointed for, for their office. And I understand um, <clears throat> Christ's baptism to be his uh, initiation into, into that office um, as the Father declares his pleasure with him, the Spirit descends and rests upon him. Um, and that he then commences his, his messianic work. So it kind of ties in a bit, but I'm not sure so much with the, the watching of the priest per se, but it's part of his priestly. Yeah. Priestly. yeah. Good. Okay, well, this is uh, interesting. There, you know, we could go on um, with many more, many more um, people um, and things that uh, the Old Testament is clearly intending by God to, to be pointing to Christ. But we don't have time, so we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your gracious uh, condescending to us, to communicate yourself to us. Uh, Father, to make yourself known in such a rich variety 
of ways, for your patience in bringing this revelation to your people um, in the midst of ignorance and rebellion and sin. We thank you for the work that you've accomplished in Christ for our salvation and that that work is completed and finished and that we can rest in him. And we thank you that uh, you continue by your spirit to make yourself known as you give insight and understanding to your people through your word as we seek to grow in our knowledge of you. And we pray, Father, that this would be for us our greatest joy, our highest pursuit, our ultimate purpose to know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. In whose name we pray, amen.